Welcome to the Joy in Medicine podcast series. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Charlie Cummings. Kelly Goodwin has spent almost half of her 30-something years living with chronic illness and pain, much of it in the hospital. Nothing and no one seemed able to help until Kelly met Rab Razak, a palliative care expert at Johns Hopkins. We met back in 2016, I think December actually. I was pretty much at my worst. I had pain all over. I couldn't get out of the hospital. I had spent more than 10 months total in the hospital that year. And he came in and it was very different than the other doctors was the first thing I noticed. I was skeptical because nobody else could help me or they thought it was in my head or things like that. But he treated me like a person. Rab describes his approach to providing palliative care, which aims to help people achieve their best quality of life wherever they are in the course of an illness. I see it as a great opportunity to be able to bring back the meaning of care, bring back the holistic care that people got into med school and nursing school for, to really connect with patients and families. And at the end of the day, when you're leaving work, you can actually say, this was a good day. This was a good day. I'd say 90 to 95% of the days when I leave work, that's what I say to myself. This was a really great day. I'm glad I was here. I was actually able to serve these patients that I care for. I was actually able to care for my colleagues who have been having a difficult time with some of these discussions. It makes things so much easier. With his help, I got off of all narcotics, and they were actually killing me. Like They shut so many things down, and that was the reason I couldn't get out of the hospital. And they weren't helping anything. Kelly is now living at home, caring for her son, and has been tentatively diagnosed with a mitochondrial disease. Palliative care, of course, also helps manage symptoms at the end of life. Some of this is designing the way we, or reformatting the way we think about end of life. Having a plan so that we can actually be better prepared to have these discussions, and also to recognize some of the beauty of it. Death isn't always ugly. Death is death. There are many things that are done around the country where they are able to honor people and their loved ones for who they are and make time for it. It can actually make a great impact on the way people see death. Because we're all going to die. The question is, how prepared are we for that? Being able to recalibrate or redesign our thinking around it. Shoshana Ungerleiter is a critical care medicine physician and founder of EndWell an organization of diverse people from a wide range of disciplines seeking a way to transform end of life to a more human-centered experience. I really didn't set out to be an advocate for palliative care, for hospice, for end of life issues. I thought I wanted to be a cardiologist or an ICU doctor early on in my training. And I found myself my very first year of residency spending months and months in the ICU where the sickest of the sick patients are typically cared for. I saw the same thing over and over. And that was many, many frail, often elderly patients with multiple chronic medical problems, late stage cancer or end stage heart disease or liver disease, spending the final days, hours of their lives hooked up to tubes and machines. 
really hidden away from their family members, the people they loved, and oftentimes in pain. And I realized once I got a handle on the medical part of it that we weren't really doing anything to change their underlying illness. They were dying of something. The fact that most of these patients didn't really have a say in the care that they were receiving was really distressing for me. I realized that the default way that we care for people in this country is this invasive, aggressive care model, which for many people is fantastic and it saves lives. But for people who are nearing the end of their lives or have a condition that we can't cure, spending their last days in the ICU isn't typically what they would opt for if they were given the choice. So I started thinking about the many reasons why we aren't having conversations with people early and often about their, really their goals and their values of how they want to live their lives. So that's what set me on this path towards thinking about this and really advocating for these issues. As so often happens, Shoshana's thinking on these issues was informed by an experience with a patient. This is actually a story from one of my later years of medical school. This was a patient, a woman in her 80s, who was chronically ill. She had had multiple strokes over the years, had high blood pressure, unfortunately also had a seizure disorder related to having those strokes. Was able to live in her own home, but really required 24-hour care. She had been in and out of the hospital several times, but was actually doing okay at home until one night a new caregiver was on with her and she had a seizure in her home. 911 was called immediately and the paramedics showed up, whisked her away via ambulance to the nearest hospital where she had been many times before. And unfortunately that hospital was on divert, meaning that the ER was closed to new patients because they were so full that night. So she went to a different hospital where she had never been seen before. Given the fact that she continued to seize, in order to protect her breathing, her airway, they decided to put in a tube and a machine to help her breathe. They intubated her. No family was around at the time, so there was no discussion, you know, about the fact that that was the next best step in order to save her life. Once stabilized in the ER, her family were able to get there. They were called and immediately rushed over and realized that she'd been intubated. What this hospital didn't know, because they didn't really have access to her records, she didn't have her copy of her advanced directive on her person, they didn't know that her wishes were to not be resuscitated in the setting of this kind of illness. It was really shocking for the family to have this happen. It obviously went against what the patient had wanted and really became a very, very difficult discussion among the family members about what to do next, given that she was being kept alive with a machine, because to withdraw that machine would mean that, that she would die pretty straight away. And I share this story because this was actually my grandmother who ended up spending her last days of life in a hospital because for whatever reason, the hospital that knew her wasn't able to see her that night. She didn't have paperwork with her in the moment she seized, although it was written everywhere around her home and put on her refrigerator. So I point this out to say that despite the best laid out plans, sometimes things don't go how you would hope. And the more that we can have people that understand your wishes, that can speak for you if you aren't able to speak for yourself, the more that we can ensure that our time is spent or our end of life happens the way that we want it to. Rab also had a transformative experience with a patient. I worked as a hospitalist initially for a number of years and then found palliative care. 
in my practice. And I still recall what led me to medicine. It was my grandfather's death. And then a decade later, my grandmother's. They were as beautiful as it could be because we were home. That was their wish. We honored their wish. It has a sacred place in my heart still. As I care for patients, I still remember that feeling I had taking care of my grandpa and recognizing the honor and the privilege of being able to do that. What happens to people who don't have anyone around to be with them when they die? Charlie and I talk about a volunteer program called NODA, for no one dies alone. I began at Johns Hopkins Hospital in April 2017. We need to understand that there's going to be a limit to the medical machine and its abilities. And when we reach the limit of its abilities, that doesn't mean that we drop someone's humanity. That we can say, all right, now what I can give you is my presence. I was thinking of that last night, actually. If you look at the two bookends of life, birth, and there's always someone there at birth. Mother always is there, and maybe somebody else, but there's always the mother. Then you look at death, and not so much. That's the need for NODA, is when the family decides, hey, we can't take this. We just can't summon the courage, whatever it takes to be able to be there, can't bear witness to this pain. And that's why NODA is really needed, so that somebody is there. Yeah. How did NODA come about? Well, it was started actually 15 years ago or so by a nurse who was in Oregon, and she had a patient who unusually knew he was dying and was also fully present. And he said to her, you know, will you please come sit with me? And she said, yeah, sure, I'll be happy to do that. Let me just go and take care of all of my other patients and we know what happened. She went to go do that and by the time she came back, he had died. And she felt really terrible about that. And so she started this NOTA, No One Dies Alone, in order to try to provide presence for people who are dying. We've had it here at Hopkins in Suburban for a few years. Interesting. Now, how do you know that it's of benefit to the patient? You know, Charlie, I don't know that it's of benefit to the patient. And it's such a great point because people point out as a criticism or a potential criticism is we're well aware that there are some people whose preference it is to die alone. So is it somehow an intrusion? into this person's world if we send a volunteer into that space. And I don't think we can really answer that adequately, but the people I know it is beneficial for are the staff, the full staff, because every single time I've been at a death, the attendings, the residents, the nurses, the nurse practitioners, the respiratory therapists, everybody comes in and says, thank you, thank you for being here. And the way that I think about that is that the NOTA volunteer, all they're doing is bearing witness to the sacredness of that moment of transition. And everybody else who's going in and out of that room has a job in caring for the patient, but the NOTA volunteer is just saying, you know what, this is humanity, and all I'm doing is bearing witness to that. And I think regardless of what you call it, the God of your understanding, there is something sacred about that transition. And I think it makes everyone feel better that that's being acknowledged. You could take it to another level. Think of someone who has no family, who goes through a major medical event, high intensity surgical procedure, what have you. And when that all finishes 
and they're in the intensive care unit and so forth, they're becoming awake and there's nobody there other than the medical personnel, paramedical personnel, who are doing their jobs, but there's nobody there as a sustainer of hope. So you wonder about that application as well. Sounds like a great idea. I would love to see a rotation by all the nursing students, by all the medical students through NODA so that they could experience death the way that people normally die who've been referred to NODA. Because those patients, 100% of the deaths that I've been there for in that case have been gentle, quiet, and appropriate really in many ways. And so I think changing our ideas about death from this fearsome thing that we're gonna try to avoid to, hey, this is going to happen. It's also gonna happen to me. And even in that space, even in a NOTA capacity, there are blessings, profound blessings that are going on in that death. And I point this out often to people who are in the room or who come in shortly thereafter. This person is well cared for. They're clean, they're warm, they're dry. They have somebody sitting with them. Think about how many people don't die under those circumstances. So much more profoundly uncomfortable ways. So I think that if we can include those ideas into our concept of death, maybe it's a little less fearsome. Well, I congratulate you. I think it's a great move. It stands out as a beacon of sensitivity and humanism. And what I like most about it, it avoids all the policy-driven manifestos that we are barraged with daily in the medical profession. It actually gets down to the nuts and bolts of life. Rab sums up all of these efforts this way. It's a really great opportunity to change the landscape of healthcare. This podcast series is brought to you in part through the generosity of the John Conley Foundation, which focuses on medicine and humanism.